What does healing mean to you? Finding connections in nature or through people and restoring those connections is really the way that I have found, you know, my ability to heal. health podcast raising unanswered questions sharing unanswered prayers we are faith-based peer-led story-driven and stigma-breaking i am tony roberts i am eric riddle and we are revealing voices Tony Roberts, it's um, beginning of July here, and it's been um, been a rough month here in the United States of America. Yeah, Eric and I have been talking about some of the events that have occurred as a result of George Floyd's death and some of the racial unrest and protests, and particularly, I have come away in this current, you know, the, in terms of the recent reflection with a sense that I'm not only blessed by God, but I'm charmed by the color of my skin. Yeah. And I've been watching episodes of, you know, Oprah Winfrey had a special conversation with black leaders about issues of inequality. And there was a, there was a video, uh, kind of a handmade smartphone video from a young, um, African-American woman who was, very upset. And she made the statement at the end, you know, y'all better be grateful that we're looking for equality and not revenge. Mm. And, uh, you know, wow. yeah. um, there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, if, if we were to experience the revenge that we've, you know, from what we've inflicted for centuries from the time of slavery yeah. till now, then, you know, we would be in much worse shape. That's right. Um, one of the also the panel, one of the panel leaders was putting into perspective how much attention in the press some of the protests have gotten. She commented that you know y'all are getting more upset about a broken window than a murdered person's life. Right. And let's put this in perspective. Granted, we don't want to glorify violence in any respect, but. We also need to have a sense of perspective. Mm -hmm. I want to say one thing about white privilege and what just occurred to me. Uh, I was going through a, a pretty rough period in my life, and I remember sitting on the couch upstairs and just breaking down in tears uh, as I was thinking about how much I can screw up and make mistakes and still just have a really soft landing, mm -hmm. you know, for a number of reasons from the financial position. I just kind of found myself in by how I, what family I was born into to, as you say, the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. It's a lot harder to screw up, I think, in general as a white person mm -hmm. and get in a tough spot, whereas a person of color can just be rolling down the street a couple of miles over the speed limit and... Mm -hmm. Next minute, get in a really tough situation, you know, and mm. 
for me, that's what white privilege is all about. It's easy to not realize walking through life, not having those kind of limitations, not having to have your parents tell you that you got to be really careful when you're out on the streets mm-hmm. because of the color of your skin. You know, I never had to have that mm-hmm. talk, you know, with my kids or my mm-hmm. parents never had to share anything like that. Maybe you never even think about it. Mm-hmm. But yet mm-hmm. our fellow Americans have to think about that every day if, if they're mm-hmm. not white. You know, one other thing that relates to this is another episode I watched or actually documentary by Ken Burns and his crew was called the Central Park Five. And yeah. Eric had not been taught this, which is part of the sense of white privilege history. In 1990, five teenagers were arrested and convicted uh, for a rape of a woman, mainly because they were black and they happened to be out walking in an area. That they did not commit. That they did not commit. And there was really no evidence uh that they had anything to do other than a coerced confession. And you can see even on the confessions that it was coerced. But that was enough to swing a jury to convict them. And some they served, and these are 14 to 16-year-old boys, and they served hard time from 7 to 14 years. The 16-year-old was sent to Rikers Island, which is... One Tough. of the worst facilities. Yeah. And then, you know, by the grace of God, the, the, a person came forward and confessed to the crime, and he had all evidence pointing to him. Mm-hmm. I mean, if they if it hadn't been such a, a hurried process and, a you know, a vengeful effort to get back for this white person's experience, and it is a terrible crime, but you don't— railroad uh, a you know kangaroo court for five young boys who did not do it right. to go to prison for half their lives. When you share that story, it reminded me of the movie Just Mercy, which is based on a book. And you know, if you know our listeners have not seen or heard about this, I highly recommend it's a, a Jamie Foxx film and a white woman uh, died. And they found a a black man that they could blame and convict and put on death row, and he didn't do it. So it's the same sort of story, and it's a really good look into the South. And the lawyer is uh, a black man who Mm -hmm. went down uh, to start a essentially justice practice Mm -hmm. uh, when he started his legal career and— it's a really good story. Just you know, mercy. and this comes back to the documentary, but also, you know, in terms of convicting people who are innocent, I heard this history of these Central Park Five when I was uh, graduating from seminary in 1990, and here I was taking a vow to speak the truth in love, mm-hmm. and at the same time they were pressured into confessing a lie that costs them half their lives. Yeah. Uh, that to me is what white white privilege is all about. You know, mm-hmm. it's just the the terrible uh, influence that society both both blacks and white, but primarily those of us with the privilege of having white, you know, light skin. 
mm-hmm. uh, have exercised. To introduce our guest, I've known Rachel for about three years, and she's a landscape architect, a uh, city planner, and a friend. She lives right here in Columbus, Indiana. Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, she had to join us by Skype, even though she just lives a, a couple miles away. But uh, Rachel is committed to uh, using her her practice to uh, restore public spaces in a way that's ecologically friendly and intentionally creating places of wellness and uh, human connectivity. So uh, I'm really excited to have her on the show. All right, Rachel, hails from the great city of Columbus, Indiana. Yes. A landscape architect, a city planner, a uh, horticulturalist. A Jill of all trades. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, a, a soon-to-be blogger. Yep. Yeah, and a proud graduate of Indiana University. That's right. Yeah, R- Rachel and I were a, a year apart in school, didn't really know each other, but reconnected when I was uh, trying to... Uh, find people to to join me in the uh, pollinator park progressive movement here in, in Columbus. <laughs> Just a great movement to be a part of. Yes, yes, it, it's been an odyssey. And Rachel, I, I think that we, we've both influenced each other as we've um, become more interested in, in native plants, in the the plight of pollinators. I know for me, my my personal mental health and life in gardening has just really benefited in the last five years or so, and you've been a part of that, so thank you. Yeah, well, thank you. I definitely agree with that for myself personally as well, and it's, it's kind of due to getting involved with this with you and, and learning about pollinators and native plants and getting involved with the community has been really rewarding. What we want to talk about is how nature, caring for nature, either getting your hands dirty or just going for a hike, um, advocating on behalf of nature, all those things can really help our mental health, right? And so as someone who both enjoys nature but can also influence public space, we really thought it'd be great to have you on to talk about your own professional practice and how it's been influenced by your own concern for environmental stewardship. Yeah, it's. I think just being in nature and even just if that means, you know, being in my yard and increasing the biodiversity in my yard, increasing the amount of plants and animals that visit my yard and connecting with them or getting out and going on a weekend hike, those things really have a have a big effect on my mental health. And I think it's just something that I want as a part of my life. And I think that can benefit the community. And it's important for me, you know, as an urban planner and landscape architect, um, my work focuses on how can we get people to experience nature within their cities and how can we better integrate nature into our built environment? Um, because I think it's important not only for our physical well-being and the well-being of our community. You've been practicing for probably, what, 15 years or so? I started working in uh, city planning in, well, 2004. Uh, And then I kind of slowly made a transition into landscape architecture, went back and got my master's in landscape architecture and started my business in 2015. Mm -hmm. 
I've always done a little bit of both. I also do work as an artist, and that's actually my degree from IU was in fine art. So I've done art along the way throughout and have gotten even more involved with that in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So starting out in fine arts, I was a little bit put off by, you know, the thought of the art world and galleries and trying to make work for you know, just the people who could afford it. And I really gravitated towards public art um, because it was, in my mind, um, more democratic art form for anyone who wanted to enjoy it. It was there for them. And I started then thinking a little bit bigger picture about, well, wait a minute, who designs the space that this art goes in? Who's designing these plazas? How, how do they get designed? Who's designing these city blocks? And that got me interested in city planning. I've always been an environmentalist since a young age. I was always, for some reason or another, called to environmental issues and um, being kind of a young activist on environmental issues. And so that was always part of my identity. So kind of weaving that into my approach to city planning and the type of art I do has always been really the main focus of my work is my um, concern about the state of our environment and, and what I can do through my work to to help, you know, the large issues of climate change and loss of biodiversity. And, um, you know, there's so many things that we can make a difference on. It's it's kind of hard to think of how we can do it on a day-to-day basis, but I I try to at least make a dent in it through my work. What are some of your earliest memories of of kind of taking on the role of an activist? Uh, So when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I started a a club at my school <laughs> and we raised money to buy uh, an acre of the rainforest. Wow. So we were pretty happy that we were able to do that. And then we also, we had just gotten um, curbside recycling in our community. And this is in Richmond, Indiana, mm. before I moved to Columbus. Um, and so I went door to door with my you know, little fifth grade girlfriends and, um, handed out flyers about curbside recycling to try to get more people to recycle. And the recycling company was so impressed because apparently we got them so much business that they took us out to lunch and gave us t-shirts. And, you know, as a little kid, we thought that was the best thing ever. And so it was just an early experience that made me realize like, wow, I can actually do something and make a difference, you know? Yeah. So it kind of continued on from there. As you look at things now, what is one, uh, essential issue and what can uh, someone like our listeners do to address that issue? Definitely, I'm continually worried and shocked the more I read about the loss of biodiversity uh, around the world and the loss of habitat that is causing this dramatic reduction in species um, and the effects that that's having, you know, on climate change and on just the way we we live. I think that, you know, it seems like such a huge issue. What can one person do? But I think as Eric and I can probably both attest, just adding a few native plants in your yard creates this huge difference in terms of the animals that you're attracting to your yard, the biodiversity you're creating on a small scale. But just to think if everyone were to maybe stop just doing their typical landscaping and pouring chemicals on, you know, mown lawn, and even just take a small patch of that and rethink how uh, we're handling 
our yards and start thinking of them as an important connection in our environment. Um, just putting in a few plants. Um, native plants are great because our native species, birds and pollinator species, uh, we've all heard about the plight of the bees, all these animals that need these plants to survive. And these plants are becoming less and less prevalent as people are just filling their lawns with um, turf grass and species that, you know, are coming from China and Europe and, and the animals don't really have any connection to these species and can't, can't live off of them. So just that small change um, has made a huge impact. Right. You know, it's, it's been probably just as beneficial to me to be able to um, enjoy these plants and see the amount of life that it's brought to my small yard. You know, I don't live on a, you know, several acre yard. I just live on your typical quarter acre subdivision lot. You know, the other day, you know, I see bunnies and all sorts of birds and, you know. I've seen a few too many bunnies in my house <laughs> this spring. I have like resident birds now that I've gotten to know. Um, I've seen so many different types of pollinators. And it's just been a lot of fun for me to learn about the different types of moths and butterflies and, um, you know, everything that's in the bees and the native bees particularly that I didn't really know much about uh, and that are all coming to my yard now just because I put in a few plants. I need to come out and check this out, Rachel. Yeah, definitely. So a question about, you know, over these about 15 years of getting into um, really supporting public projects, whether it be art or um, parks, that sort of thing, ha have you seen any change in public sentiment towards um, investment in parks, uh, investment in more professional landscaping and the, and the use of native plants? Yes. I think there is a lot more interest in it than there has ever been before. And I think that's very exciting. You know, if we look at bigger cities, there have been some very high profile projects, like I mentioned the High Line, or we have the Lurie Garden in Chicago. Um, you know, there's lots of examples where people are seeing a new way of um, landscaping with more native perennials uh, and, and, you know, things that maybe look a little more quote unquote natural than your typical urban landscaping. I think a lot of people are definitely responding positively to this because it's just so much more interesting and exciting um, than, you know, what we're used to seeing, which is just turf grass and maybe some boxwood or kind of dull shrubs or something, you know, it's like we've got colors and, you know, changes throughout the season. And, um, you know, like we're mentioning it, it's attracting um, pollinators and birds um, that people don't typically see or may not really even know about until they visit these spaces and learn about them. Um, I saw a hummingbird moth for the first time last year and I was just blown away. I was like, why, you know, I've lived in Indiana most of my life. Why have I never seen this? You know? right. And it was coming to uh, one of my milkweed plants that just let grow that is native to this region, but most people, you know, mow down. It, it just it just naturally came up in my yard and I let it grow and it attracted all these things. So there are a lot of people that are interested in this, I think, who are feeling a lack of nature in their lives, especially as we see cities continuing to grow and more and more people living in high-rise apartments and things like that. 
um, and wanting more of an urban experience for all the urban environments have to offer. But if we don't think of thoughtful ways to build in nature, you know, and environmental systems into that, I think that that's going to be something that people really miss, even if they don't consciously realize they miss it. And, you know, talking about the mental health benefits of of experiencing those things, I think people realize it, um, realize what they've missed once they maybe experience it again. I was just going to pick up on the mental health aspect. Have there, has there been an occasion in your life for the people that you've interacted with that illustrates the benefits of uh, nature with regard to mental health? I could say for me personally, it definitely makes a big difference. You know, just sometimes I just really feel the need to get out and take a hike, you know, just for a stress reliever and just going out and finding a trail somewhere um, is helpful. Um, and just, you know, even going out and I've been growing a lot of, uh, of things from seeds this spring. And so just getting out and potting some plants in the dirt and, you know, watching things grow. I, I mean, I just notice a, a definite release of anxiety just in a few minutes of doing that. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, and the more I, I mention these things to people um, or just kind of my experiences with the different plants or animals I'm seeing in my yards, uh, interacting or um, different discoveries I've made with how plants are growing or what animals are coming to my yard. I'm finding more and more people, I think particularly now that people are at home more during this pandemic, um, people are really think taking some enjoyment and getting to know all the animals that are coming to their yard. And it's just sort of a way to connect uh, when we're in a time of, you know, a lot of disconnection from our communities and our loved ones. And mm-hmm. it can be a way to find that connection. You know, for me, you know, in terms of the pandemic and stress relief. I do a lot of gardening and I feel like I've just been very much in touch with the the seasons and the climate and just the spring this year more so than before because I'm at home and while time can get kind of weird as we're you know quarantined for me being able to just be in my yard and experiencing the season like I have you know every year that I've gardened has helped really pardon the pun, but ground me, right, in the here and now and in all those rhythms of life that have continued. And and that, for me, has really helped my mental health, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's very important. Nature can remind us that things are impermanent. Each moment is important, and it really, I think, helps us to appreciate the now. Mm -hmm. And, And just, you know, the changing of the seasons helps us to just appreciate the moment that we're in. I think really caring for the environment is the best way back to caring for each other. That's where I stand these days. I agree. And I mean, there's been a lot of um, talk about how the COVID-19 viruses really, and, and many of the viruses that have threatened us before this are a result of our lack of stewardship of the environment. Our destruction of habitat, our just unprecedented expansion into these natural areas is bringing us into conflict with other animals that is causing this jump of, you know, viruses into humans. And so 
um, you know, it's something I'm just obviously learning about as I'm reading more about it and as scientists are talking about a little bit more. But to me, that's an interesting point that, you know, this the way our health, not only as individuals, but, um, you know, our collective public health has a lot to do with the way we treat our environment and the world around us. So are there political issues you're very concerned about that are on the horizon or on the uh, uh, forefront that you think our listeners would be do well to to be aware of and get involved in? Indiana did just recently last year pass a um, invasive species uh, rule they called the Indiana terrestrial plant rule um, and I know there are similar efforts that have happened in other states um, about trying to limit the amount of invasive plants that are able to be sold at stores. The plants that, um, you know, people buy and they look innocent enough and they think, oh, this is pretty. I'll put this in my yard. Little do they know that it's um, jumping into local forests and devastating the natural habitat and things like that. Um, so that's something that I think people should try to pay a little more attention to. Um, you know, not all plants that you buy for your yard are are equal. Um, and if you're going to spend some money, you might as well spend some money on plants that are going to help your, um, you know, your local song, songbird population and and help your um, area parks and habitat to, um, you know, not become overrun with invasive species. Mm-hmm. I think it's always good for people to get involved in better understanding their local land use decisions and public transportation decisions that are being made at the city level. Um, What are some ways that your city is trying to promote active transportation? How is your city uh, working on improving its parks? You know, we talked about some some parks already, um, but you'd be surprised, even though there are a lot of people that are for creating more natural habitat in parks, areas that may not look like your typically manicured parks. There are a lot of people in the community who don't like to see that change. And they they will, you know, having mm. worked for a city, I can attest to, there are a lot, of, a lot more people than you would realize who are calling the city saying, why aren't you mowing this park? Why aren't you mowing this, you know, patch of grass? So there are a lot of people that, that may not understand that this area is is an active habitat. It's not just mm-hmm. messy or overgrown or neglected, mm-hmm. you know. So I think being an active voice right. on the other side of that and saying, you know, applauding, you know, when you do see your your city government doing something that is intended to help, um, call them and say you appreciate that and you applaud that because you, you can then be against the other person that's calling and saying, why aren't you mowing that out? I think that's important. Volunteer help. Like, like Eric and I have done, Eric is you know, a champion volunteer in the community and has really helped me to get out there more and volunteer in my community. And, you know, we've made, I think, a a pretty big difference by just saying, hey, we'll come in and we'll put in these plants and we'll help get the plants, we'll help grow the plants and we'll put them in and we'll help take care of them. And then that's a great way for others Mm -hmm. to see, you know, the benefit of having something that may look a little different, uh, but it's helping the environment. We're having a grand reopening of uh, a pollinator park here mm-hmm. in Columbus that Rachel was a big part mm-hmm. of. We got a grant through the Indiana Office of Community and Rural Affairs, and 
there's a little trail system in, in this area, and then we've planted about over a thousand native plants in the past year. That's been a big project for us, and there's a couple other projects going on in Bartholomew County. One's in a more rural setting, Clifford mm -hmm. Park, and then the big one is Pleasant Grove, which mm -hmm. that's how Rachel and I initially bonded. And that's ongoing. Rachel actually uh, was able to get a FEMA-approved landscape plan for about two and a half acres of property. And as Rachel, you know, is saying, uh, turning lawn into a more, you know, wildflower area mm -hmm. uh, that not everybody's going to understand right away is is difficult. So there's a lot of public education mm -hmm. that goes on with going beyond mowed grass <laughs> as the best use of public property. Yeah. So now let me ask a personal question. My wife is redoing our backyard right now. Our intent is to do both back and front. But for someone out there who's listening, who's looking to design, looking to replant, um, what sort of resource can you provide or where, where would you advise them to look to do something good for the environment that also looks good? Well, for those listeners in Indiana, I would recommend um, visiting the Indiana Native Plant Society website. So it's indiananativeplants.org. And, uh, you know, most states have an organization similar where you can um, just find out about what plants will work well in your landscape um, that are native to the region. A lot of sites like the Indian and Native Plant Society website, they actually have a lot of information about what do these plants actually do in terms of what pollinators will they attract to your yard? Um, what benefits do they have um, for wildlife? Uh, as well as just some practical information for you on where you should put it in your yard in terms of how much sunlight it needs and things like that. Uh, how tall it will grow and make sure you make a decision on, you know, where it can go that works for you. Um, and they also have um, a list of places where you can buy native plants in the area. Um, if you're not in Indiana and you're curious, you can look up native plants in, in your state. A lot of times, most states have a um, ag department that has a lot of useful information. Um, like in Indiana, we have Purdue that has the ag extension, uh, where in each county, there's opportunities to um, get information locally about um, gardening and native plants and um, pollinator species. Those are great resources as well. And of course, you can contact a local landscape architect if you want a little bit more uh, advice uh, on how to design things in your yard so that it's connected uh, in ways to environment the environment in terms of habitat and thinking through the best design that will function best for, for you as well. I know a landscape architect in town. <laughs> yeah, there's several good ones. A lot of times there's a little bit of a misconception about the field of landscape architecture. We typically um, a lot of times deal with um, larger expanses of land than just a residential property. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of my work has to do with master planning uh, or parks planning, things like that, um, which is different from what you might consider the work a landscape designer would do or the you know, the, the person who, a landscaper, a person who will come to your yard and help a landscape. Landscape architects are, are trained to understand, you know, more systems thinking about how 
what you're doing in your yard is part of this overall um, environmental system. So it's a little bit uh, broader thinking than you would have from a, a landscaper who, who may do a wonderful job making your yard look pretty and may, you know, many of them may know about native plants, but um, that's kind of just explaining kind of the differences in the fields. It's just fun to see how a plant changes over the course of a season and um, you know you may decide well I think I need to dig that up and move it a little bit maybe it do better in this other part of my yard and it's just constantly an evolving process and that's that's really the fun of it I think you know it's not landscape architecture is you know part science and part art and as an art form it's the, the thing that's fun about it is um, it's an art form that it constantly evolves. You know, you're not creating like a static sculpture that you want to stay the same forever. You're creating a living thing that's going to evolve and change over time. So Rachel, what is your vision uh, for your future work in relation to supporting the environment and, and the wellness of the communities you're involved in? I hope that I can continue to find ways to engage with the community on how we can better integrate nature into our city, you know, whether that's through our park systems, through trail systems, through rethinking our subdivisions and our our suburban lots and, and what landscaping looks like in our homes, around our homes. Um, so I hope to do that through education, through projects, through actually getting out there and, you know, designing things. And then, you know, in my, my artwork, I like to kind of think about these concepts of really how we define nature and what that means for us um, and how we feel connected with nature and explore those in my art and with the hope that, you know, hopefully that can create more of a dialogue with people and get them thinking about the natural world around them, maybe notice things that they hadn't noticed before. You know, I think we, we can start to get a little numb or blind of the natural world around us if we're not really feeling connected with it. And so, you know, I hope through my work that I can help people to find that connection with the environment, whether it's one that they've kind of lost over the years as they've gotten busy with their life, or maybe it's one that, um, you know, is a new thing for them. So I, I think that's kind of the fundamental concept of my work is to help people connect with nature. Rachel and I are both doing this Instagram project. It's called the 100 day project and mine is simply taking pictures of flowers and plants and trees and such and posting the image with the name of the plant and that's fun but it's it's pretty quick i can do it daily uh, rachel on the other hand on on her 100 day project is much more ambitious and so she'll have like a full-on sculpture she's worked on for instance well, I've been just kind of like marching out my front door and taking a picture of uh, some lettuce. Well, I think you were probably smarter about it. I, I think I probably bit off a little more than I could chew. So I've I've um, taken a few days off recently while I try to um, get it back together so I can get back to it um, and post more things. But yeah, yeah I, it's been a fun challenge to just help hold me accountable to keep making things and sharing them. People. So to search that on Instagram, it's it's a hashtag and then 100 days of sculpture. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. And what's your yep. Instagram handle? It's my full name, so at Rachel Cavate. Got it. R A C H E L K A V A T H E. I'll, I'll put that in in 
the show notes. So Rachel, you, you've really done an amazing job, you know, talking about your own work and, and the mental health benefits. And, and so just kind of in summary, how do you respond to the question of what, what does healing mean to you? You know, I'm thinking about times when I have needed to heal. I was able to do that through, I think, restoring connections with people and, and with um, the world around me. I think connecting, again, with maybe people that, um, like family or loved ones, is something that is important when I'm healing. A lot of times when I'm feeling depressed or anxious, it's when I'm feeling disconnected from people um, or disconnected even from the environment. Like I feel a strong connection, you know, with my surroundings. I think that's probably why I went into my field of, you know, that has to do with changing our surroundings for the better, I hope. So finding connections in nature um, or through people and restoring those connections is really the way that I have found, you know, my ability to heal. That's great. And I think you're carrying that into your work also, Rachel, to help others do the same. Yeah, I hope so. Because I mean, it's been po very powerful for me. So I hope that, you know, that can positively affect others as well. Talk to us a little bit about your upcoming blog and your website. In my design work, I work on designs for parks and plazas and streetscapes and that sort of thing for communities. And my artwork, I, I really think about these concepts of how we can integrate nature back into our environment. So I'm, I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I figure now is as good a time as ever to start a blog where I can talk about what I'm calling ideas on nature. So that's going to be the, the blog is ideasonnature.com. And really the idea is to, to talk about some of the leading thinkers in the field of um, just the philosophy behind nature and, you know, how this concept of what we think of as nature and how we need to really rethink uh, what we consider as nature. You know, we think of ourselves as separate from nature. A lot of times in the cities uh, where we live, we think of nature as something out there, as separate from us. And, you know, the more and more we understand about climate change um, and the same time as we see our cities growing at exponential rates, I think it's time to really rethink how our cities need to be built to better integrate nature into our cities. And so this blog is really just a way to explore ideas on that topic and look at what cities are doing around the world um, to integrate more natural systems into the built environment and also just kind of explore some ideas of what people can do in their own cities or in their own backyards. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, so I'm excited to get that started. Great. Well, Rachel, it's it's been fun, uh, you know, volunteering with you over the last few years. I look forward to continuing to, to do our work and get more flowers and native plants in the ground. All right? Yes, great. Tony, it was good to have a, a friend on the podcast here. Yeah, I enjoyed meeting Rachel. I can see how she would be inspirational in her work to you and to others. I uh, was particularly impressed by her story of being a, a young Greta Thunberg <laughs> <laughs> and going around to start a recycling movement that made a huge difference in the community and in the world. It's inspiring to think that one 
teenager, one I don't even know if she was a teenager. She was one young. She was person. in elementary school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you one young person can make a difference, and that uh, inspires us to think. You know what? What can we do for the environment? I've heard, you know, even civil rights leaders who now say the one human right that is top on their agenda is global warming and climate change. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly feel like supporting the environment is one of the best ways for everybody to come together. Yeah. If if we can get to a point where we can all agree that we only have one Earth and we can do a much better job of taking care of it, mm-hmm. it'll improve the health of the Earth, it'll improve our personal health, and it'll improve the social connections that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've found my life and ministry becoming much more involved in supporting the environment mm-hmm. you know i've only been doing it for a few years now but really uh, since the columbus flood of 08 i think that's what really kicked off an mm-hmm. awareness of needing to be more in tune with natural rhythms and caring for what we've yeah. been given being stewards of the environment and with the flood you just dove right in <laughs> I dove in. I wrote a book about it. That's right. The watershed moment of my life. That's right. No and doubt. it's a good book. Yeah. Available at Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rachel, thank you. I really appreciate your patience. I talked to Tony about that. Uh, you know, just in the time we've been working together, you know, we've got a bold uh plan to to have a new pollinator park and flood memorial here in town and it takes a lot of public engagement a lot of you know bureaucratic jumping through hoops and thankfully we can do it together and that you're patient enough to handle all the ups and downs of trying to make progress Mm -hmm. but you know that's that's what it takes when you're doing things in the public realm getting a lot of uh consensus building and yeah i know uh, eric was talking about some of the frustration involved in doing city planning and also political activism or public advocacy because there are many of us myself included who are oblivious to how our lives impact the environment um other than taking an occasional walk with with my dog briley um, mm-hmm. in in Donner Park. I don't have much of a relationship with, with nature. This afternoon, I did feed the birds. So nice. <laughs> I'm pretty pleased with that. We we have two bird feeders in our stu- outside our study window now. And one of them is just getting tons of different birds. The yeah. other is a hummingbird feeder, and we, we can't seem to attract them. Yeah. So. I saw one in my yard uh, a last hummingbird? week. Yeah. Well, very good. Tony, our show has come to a close. Now is the time to ask for five-star reviews. Please scroll to the bottom of our podcast homepage, click on five stars, then click on write a review. Help us reach more people seeking emotional healing and the hope of faith. Thanks again for your support of Revealing Voices. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help.
A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. I saw a rabbit outside your. Oh your my little... gosh, we have so many rabbits. <laughs> You've got to protect those little bunnies. Though. <laughs> They're part of the. They're part know? of the ecosystem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.